Good morning, friends. Welcome to those uh, joining us here in the chapel, those joining us online, uh, present with us uh, digitally. Welcome and welcome back. Let's begin our time together this morning with a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And let's join together in a gathering prayer. It'll be found on the screens around us and let's, let's pray this together. Eternal strength, hold us. Eternal hope, show us new life. Eternal compassion, comfort us in our grief. Eternal goodness, grant us your grace as we live, work, and pray in this place, in this time, and with these people who reveal your love. Amen. I'll invite you all to stand in body or spirit, however you are most comfortable this morning. Our first hymn can be found either on page 710 in the Voices Together hymnal or on the walls around you.
friends. The first reading today comes from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Our second uh, reading today will come from Psalm 72, uh, which we will uh, have a responsive piece here. Do you want to explain, Brett, how we're doing this? So we'll read uh, this psalm responsively. Um, uh, Professor Cook will read the... I'll stutter, sorry. Uh, we'll lead the, the plain print. We will read the bold print together. Um, and uh, every so often we will have a, a sung response or um, an antiphon, and that will appear on the screen. And Laura, uh, would, would you mind playing that first so we can get in our heads? Uh, we'll uh, sing it together once, and then we'll begin with the song. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures, and as long as the moon, throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Our next reading comes from Romans 13, the first part of the chapter. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it is God's agent for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not 
bear the sword in vain. It is the agent of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's agents, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Our final reading for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. The Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have the joy of introducing to you today my mentor and friend of almost 17 years, the Reverend Dr. Reverend Professor Dr. David P. Gushy. He is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. He is also the Chair in Social Ethics at the Fry Universiteit Amsterdam, as well as a Senior Research Fellow at the International Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of, or editor, or co on dozens of books, hundreds of articles, including things for academic journals and in popular publications. But also today, it's relevant in this space to say he is a pastor. Not only in title, he's a reverend, but also in presence. As those of my students who had the joy of hearing from him this morning know uh, from our our time together. And so we welcome you today with uh, open hearts, ready to hear what you have to say. Thank you, David, for being with us. Good morning, everybody. It is good to be here uh, for the first time at Eastern Mennonite, uh, a school that I have known about and respected for a very long time from a distance. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with my friend Jake and uh, with the brilliant students I already had a chance to meet uh, today. So thank you for the invitation. I flew in from Atlanta last night rather late, so I am hoping to not collapse on stage, and if I uh, don't, then I will consider it a major major victory, so uh, pray for me. Uh, I just also uh, got here from overseas as well, so I have no idea what time it is, but I know the time that I am in, which is preaching time, so that's that's the time we will be. 
thinking biblically about government in an election year. I asked Brett if we could do uh, all four texts and uh, frame up this reflection on government with, with a text from these four different sections of scripture. So that's what we're going to do today. I begin by saying the obvious. We enter an election year in a time of great political and cultural division in our country. That could have been said, though, every four years since 1968. If you've been around long enough, you would know that. But today, we can also add that we enter an election year with exceedingly high levels of social mistrust, loss of confidence on the part of many people in our major political and cultural institutions, and a significant part of the electorate not sure of the honesty of the administration of our elections themselves. And more, we enter an election year in a time in which partisan polarization has reached such a fever pitch that millions on both sides of our binary believe that the difference between the parties is more a matter of good and evil, right and wrong, than anything as simple as policy preferences. And more, we enter an election year in which a small but growing minority of the population is showing signs of losing confidence in our democratic form of government as it has evolved in this country, including some Christian scholars and activists who are explicitly arguing for Christian authoritarianism to to stanch the cultural and moral chaos that they perceive as the main problem that we face. So this is a sermon moment. It's preaching time, rather than a political analysis moment. And so I will not say more about our national situation now. I will tonight, though. My task, instead, is to help us think biblically about government. As an ethicist, I consider this a very fun and challenging task. Now, I did pick the four texts that you've already heard this morning. They are only four texts. There are so many other relevant texts that we could have selected. I can imagine some of you theologian Bible types being ready to raise your hand with your nomination for more relevant texts than the ones that I selected. Or to challenge uh, one or another of the texts. It is not too much to say that the Bible is full of texts that are relevant to how Christians ought to think about government. Indeed, the Bible is so full of relevant texts, which do not all necessarily point in the same direction, and which were written in contexts very far from the democratic republic in which we live, that interpreting scripture constructively to help inform Christian discipleship and political life is very challenging. This may be one reason why few pastors really attempt it. But instructional vacuums in the church are dangerous. If the church doesn't teach about a crucial area of life, a vacuum is created that is usually filled by somebody else. So let's give it a try. I may surprise you by choosing to begin with a favorite text of Christian monarchists, dictators, and authoritarians everywhere, Romans 13, 1 through 7. You heard the passage. 
Paul is arguing that government authorities, those who rule, those who carry the sword, those who collect taxes, have been instituted by God for the good of those they rule. Notably, by deterring the kind of wrongdoing that threatens the peace and order of the political community. That's the Romans 13 message. Now, I hasten to say that the text is best read not as saying that God has appointed each particular person to their office, but that the offices themselves are instituted by God for the well-being of the community. Paul is recognizing that human communities filled with sinful people, but also with people who have the potential to do good, need authority structures, including government, to deter their worst instincts and to encourage their best instincts. Christians should thus choose voluntarily to recognize the legitimacy of government authorities and therefore to be subject to them not just because they can harm us if we get crosswise with them, but mainly on grounds of conscience. That's what Paul is arguing. It is notable that Paul is claiming for God all structures of political authority, including those regimes which do not recognize the God whose activity Paul is describing. This would mean that the self-understanding of these regimes, like an atheistic or communist or imperial, pagan, Caesarist regime, the self-understanding of the regime is not the last word, not for Christians. Now, in this, for this passage, Paul has routinely been criticized severely for what appears to be the authorization of total subjection of Christians to every dictate of every kind of government. That is one reading, but it's not a good reading of Romans 13. By several times describing what government does, he is also setting up an implicit moral norm for what government should do and should not do. The norm is that government is to keep the order and advance the common good of the community, the political community. Its agents must pose no threat to the innocent and are to take from the people only what is due them, nothing more. The fact that Paul himself was ultimately and unjustly killed by the very regime in Rome that he appears to be describing here is one of the great ironies of Christian history. Now there is an anarchist strand of Christian tradition which sees government as intrinsically evil. And many voices which appear unable to distinguish between proper and improper exercises of government power. Now, it is possible to see worldly government as intrinsically evil simply because it has coercive power. It coerces and threatens and sometimes kills its own people and other people in war. But this is not how Paul is arguing here. Now, the fact that government coerces and threatens and sometimes kills may rule out at least certain forms of government service for Christians who believe that, that this is not appropriate for followers of Christ. Of course, this has been a long-standing Anabaptist tradition. You'll be familiar with it. But I believe that thinking biblically about government does include granting certain key premises of Paul's argument here. I think he's right that human beings are created good yet fallen, 
that to prevent chaos and the rule of the criminal and the bully, we need government and other structures of authority. Government that does this and only this in a proper way is a gift from God to humanity. Precisely as a gift from God, government exists to serve the people. The people don't exist to serve the government. The principle of submission to government authority does not imply no right to protest the improper exercise of such authority. Indeed, Paul can be read as implicitly authorizing protest by specifying the norms of how government is to function. If government must do this, then when government is not doing this, then we are to challenge it. Government can and must be held accountable for its proper functioning. If Christians look at government in this way, we can have a respectful yet critical lens for engaging in public life and for engaging with government authorities directly. We can say, we know what your mandate is, you are not fulfilling it. The second text is the famous passage from Genesis about us being made in the image of God. It is such a majestic passage, so central to biblical theology and ethics. As the ultimate act on the sixth day of creation, God makes us in the divine image. Theologians have suggested the imago dei might refer to unique human capacities or unique human responsibilities delegated to us by God, or simply to God's decision, sovereign decision, to elevate human status in this unique way. It is also quite interesting that a tradition which banned making icons or images of God chose to declare human beings to be icons and images of God. I think the significance of the image of God in relation to government is this. We begin by recognizing the the God-declared dignity and worth of each and every person. The Imago Dei also implies or at least lays the groundwork for a concept of human rights. The Christian tradition has developed the idea that if the human being is made in the image of God, that means we can be said to have certain rights, both negative and positive rights. Negative rights have to do with what cannot and must not be done to a human being, like torture or murder or arbitrary arrest without trial. Positive rights have to do with what must be done for human beings, like provision of adequate food, education, health care, and so on. Government has unique responsibilities to ensure for its people both negative rights and positive rights. All of this, I think, can be traced pretty directly to the image of God. Further, the concept of the Imago Dei helps us to see that it is not government that provides or declares the worth and dignity of human beings. That is before government. Government simply recognizes what God has provided and declared. It also means that no government or representative of government is allowed to attack the worth and dignity of any person or group of persons. When government or government officials do that, they are violating the image of God, often in very devastating ways. Further, the idea of the image of God applies to everyone, without exception. It therefore provides the basis for Christians to demand of government that all people and groups be treated with dignity, as persons of immeasurable worth, and that rights of all should be equal. The concept of the image of God is implicitly democratizing and egalitarian because everybody is covered. There are no exceptions. 
that makes it one of the most important contributions of the Bible to political thought. Psalm 72, I liked how we did that with the responsive reading and then the, the song. It's such an interesting psalm. I, I noticed that in the Catholic Mass, Psalm 72 is read repeatedly at Advent as if to remind um, believers what it is that God intended in government. Now there is an entire category of royal psalms celebrating the dynasty of the Davidic line. Sometimes they are what we might say a bit obsequious. In other words, um, a royal dynasty believed to be installed by God commissions musicians to praise the king, and boy, you get a lot of praising of the king, right? But I love this particular psalm, and I think it's not a coincidence that the Catholic Church relies on it so heavily at Advent, because what it does is to condition its various conventional prayers for the king, like, may the king have a long life, may the king's dominion spread, may the enemies be submissive, may the king's name last forever. It conditions all of that, with requests for the king to be just and to rule with righteousness. Here we meet the grand Hebrew concepts of tzedakah and mishpat, those essentially deeply Jewish understandings of justice which emphasize the well-being of the entire community with special attention to those who are poor and marginalized. The psalmist prays for a certain kind of ruler, a certain kind of king, one who is especially attentive to bringing justice to the poor, to defending the cause of the poor, to delivering them, to deterring and crushing those who would oppress the poor. In verse 12 and 13, it, it, it comes back to that. He delivers the needy when they call, that is the king, the poor and those who have no helper. He has, no pity, on, he has pity on the weak and on the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. That's what a good king is. We know from Old Testament law how much attention is given to protecting the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the stranger. To protecting them from being overpowered and exploited, from being rendered without land and without home, destitute. As God's covenant people, Israel agreed to live out this covenant. But centuries later, we see the king being asked to enforce it with passion and compassion, which must mean that for Israel, as for so many other countries, including our own, those with political, social, and economic power were harming the poor or leaving them destitute. The poor need deliverance. The king was to be the deliverer. That's what it meant to be a good king. This powerful prayer is implicitly a demand for a just king. And such a, a demand still speaks to us today. A just government in any land attends to the needs of the poor and to the needs of all who are deeply vulnerable. And it protects them from those people and forces that would grind their faces into the dust. If we integrate this passage with Romans 13 and Genesis 1, it says something like this, because every human is made in the image of God and is sacred in God's sight, and because the evils that people and structures do are often visited upon especially vulnerable groups of people, 
A key role of government is to deploy its power for their protection and their flourishing. A good government, you might say, fights for the life of the poor and for the lives of others who are most vulnerable to injustice. How do we think about government? We want that kind of government in any land. Then the last passage from the gospel. Jesus is in the temple in the last week of his life, holding the crowd spellbound while enemies all around look for grounds to arrest him and kill him. In this story, you have a rare combination of Pharisees and Herodians working together to try to trap Jesus with a political loyalty question. It is, in accord, is it in accord with Jewish law and therefore God's will for Jews to pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? Give us an answer, Jesus. If he says yes, Jesus could be viewed as a traitor to his people, especially saying in the temple, right? If he says no, he could be viewed as an insurrectionist with Roman soldiers nearby to arrest him during Passover week. Jesus' answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Mic drop, go home. Last question. Now this answer, this mic drop answer, is open to wildly different interpretations. It has been read dualistically, as if Jesus is saying that Caesar gets its proper share of our money in taxes and our blood in war, and our hearts in nationalism, while God gets our eternal souls. I think that's a pretty bad deal for God, if that's all God gets. It has been read quite the opposite way, though. The idea that a thoroughgoing, radical, prophetic Jewish Messiah like Jesus would allow God's sovereign God's sovereignty over us to be limited to the soul doesn't seem to fit. So one argument is that what Jesus is really saying is that Caesar deserves nothing and God gets everything. He is not endorsing a tax revolt, but he's also not arguing against it. That's interesting to think about. It, it should also be noted that by asking for a Roman denarius and finding it in the hands of his Jewish questioners, he is already exposing their involvement with Roman rule, which includes handling money that contains the image of a human ruler who has idolatry, idolatrously declared himself to be a god. Show me the coin that you are holding. Let's talk about it. I want to suggest that this teaching of Jesus at least tells us this. The state, the government, its officials, leaders, and so on, may well, in fact, often do ask us to render things to it that go beyond what our loyalty to God should allow us to offer. This becomes very clear in other texts, including the one that was my fifth, which I'll now drop in as a bonus text, <laughs> so that you can say, I've been to church today. <laughs> Amen. Five texts, and here's this one. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men or any human authority. Precisely because there are God-given limits to government's proper role, to the loyalty owed to any leader, party, or state, 
There are times when Christians must draw a line, when Christians have to say no to the state, to the party, to the president, to the nation. Sometimes at great risk and great cost. States don't like being told no. The fact that this has been such a frequent pattern of history is a reminder, indeed, that government can easily morph into a rebellious rather than an obedient power. Turning away from its limited God-given role toward idolatry of itself and tyranny over those it is called to serve. At such times, Christians are called to see clearly and respond with brave defiance. So let me conclude this way. We do have significant guidance in Scripture for thinking about government and our relation to it. Seminarians, any pastor, ought to be able to unpack passages like this and walk through them with your people. I was teaching a class last semester, and I talked about this with the students, and a student did a practice sermon uh, about these themes. And I said, any chance you could go back and do that in your church? And, and he said, I would be fired immediately. Many of our pastors are living in fear of even speaking a basic word about basic biblical truths. I don't know exactly what to say, but the, the pulpit being constrained in that way is not where we want to be. The pulpit is for the word of God to be proclaimed. The Bible does not give us everything we need to develop a case for democracy over monarchy or oligarchy. It does not tell us who to vote for. It does not give us prepackaged answers to specific policy questions like what should environmental policy look like or what should the law be about this or that. But it does give us a lot. The text today give us a vision as to where human government comes from, why we need it, what it is supposed to do and not do, how it is to treat human beings made in the image of God, and where its limits are reached and breached. It gives Christians a charter for caring about government rather than stepping back entirely, for obeying it where we can, engaging it where we should, protesting it where we must. All of this is an aspect of Christian discipleship in any country, in any political system, in any era. We cannot avoid this aspect of discipleship. I hope that the churches in this election year can do better in providing concrete biblical guidance for the people of God in the dimension of discipleship that has to do with government and public life. The texts are there. Let's preach the word. Thank you. Let's spend a moment in silent reflection, allowing our hearts to marinate in everything that we've heard.
And as we continue to wrestle with the gifts and the demands of God's word in our public life, um, our hymn of reflection will be As the Waters Rise Around Us. You will find it on either page uh, 708 of the Voices Together hymnal or on the walls around you. I invite you to stand in body or spirit, however you are more comfortable, and let's sing together.
and join me in a spirit of prayer. Most high God, from whom and to whom flows loyalty and love, which has been encoded in covenant and enfleshed in Christ, we pray to you in an election year that our love for each other would not waver, even as our visions of peace may differ. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Redeeming God, who came to us as a stranger and bid us to love our neighbor, guide us that we may use our civic duties and privileges to shield and empower our siblings, whom you have entrusted to our care and to whom you have entrusted ours. In your mercy, hear our prayer. You have told us that to whom much is given, much will be expected. And so we lift up those who bear the burden of leadership and those who are seeking office. Bring their best intentions to fruition. Convict them when they abuse their power. Confront them with your love that they may be transformed and go about their duties with compassion and an eye for your justice. In your mercy, hear our prayer. And now I invite you to pray with me as Jesus taught us to pray. Eternal Spirit, life giver, pain bearer, love maker, source of all that is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by the peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love, now and forever. Amen. final hymn together before we go our separate ways. Christ is King, let earthly powers found either on page 410 or on the walls around you. I invite you to stand in body or spirit as you are more comfortable and let's sing together one more time.
Please receive this blessing. Lord, to each of us as individuals in our spirits, we pray your blessing of encouragement in a time that is often discouraging in our country. For the ministers and those in ministerial training, we pray the blessing of empowerment to preach a word in season that speaks to the formation of a faithful church. And for our country, Lord, we pray the blessing of healing, of unity, and of the ability to move forward together as a nation. We ask these prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen.